Hey everybody, welcome to the Blockchain Boys. Leftist critique and vision for technology. I'm Jay. You know me. No Grant today. Uh, today's a special episode. Uh, I'll have Valentin Lopez joining me on the program. Valentin Lopez has been the chair of the Amamuts and Tribal Band since 2003 and is president of the Amamuts and Land Trust, established in 2012. He is actively involved in efforts to restore tribal indigenous knowledge, to restore the Moots and language, to expand Amamuts and land stewardship efforts, and to address false narratives in California history regarding indigenous peoples. He has taken a part in many interdisciplinary panels on a variety of topics ranging from human rights to ecology, and he has spoken at the United Nations on behalf of saving the sacred site known as Uristak. I'll be talking to him about Uristak and the effort to protect it being undertaken by South Bay Indigenous Solidarity, a coalition founded by the Silicon Valley Democratic Socialists of America dedicated to protect and expand the rights of the indigenous peoples of the South Bay area, including the Amamutsun. We'll also talk about the interactions between settler societies, academic institutions, and indigenous people, the limits of European science, and indigenous perspectives on ecology. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Chairman Valentin Lopez. Joined today by uh, Valentin Lopez, chairman of the Amamutsun Tribal Band. Val, thanks for uh, joining me. You're welcome. Thank you. So, uh, I think before we get into anything, really, we should talk about, or I, I know you like to talk about uh, Mutsun history, to those who might not be familiar. Uh, so, uh, can you talk about first the um, pre-contact uh, Mutsun culture, what, what it was like taking care of the land a little bit? Mm -hmm. um, yes, Jonathan. Um, well, I always start with our creation story. Our creation story starts, uh, takes, um, our creation story occurs at Mount Amunam, which was the tallest mountain in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And um, what's significant there is that <clears throat> Creator, you know, after um, um, bringing all life forms, the plants, the animals, the oceans, the land forms, uh, the birds, the fish, etc., he brought man and woman last. And he gave man and woman a higher intelligence, ability to problem solve, to make decisions, etc. And then with that, he gave a man and woman the responsibility to take care of Mother Earth and all living things. And that was an obligation that our ancestors took seriously. And they recognized that because Creator formed all the plants and the animals and stuff, they recognized uh, two things. First, that um, everything was sacred because it was made, uh, created by, by Creator. And, they, and there, our people looked at it as being sacred. And then also that it was our responsibility to maintain that sacredness. And... Um, so therefore, we develop first prayers and ceremonies and and ways to um, to ask Creator to help us do our work of taking care of all living things, and then we went about learning um, how to effectively take care of it. We did not want to build monuments, or we didn't want to change um, the, the course of rivers, or to dominate Mother Earth in any way. We wanted to just take care of it as Creator made it. We said that Creator knew where those plants belong, and so he would put food plants in certain locations, and medicine plants in other locations, and we would work to take care of them where they grew. So we did not domesticate our plants, and we were not farmers. At the same time, we certainly were not hunters and gatherers. 
we actively stewarded and managed the land. Um, we, did, we did a lot of cultural resource management so that we would grow, uh, you know, like the plants. We, um, we would grow the plants in patches, and each patch would grow bigger and bigger depending on how the populations uh, that were dependent on those plants grew. And um, so um, that, that's how we took care of the plants in their place. We also recognized that all plants have the obligation to take care of a community, and that community included the fungi, the insects, the birds, the four-legged, and people. And, um, uh, and so we had to, uh, the way that our people stewarded them, with that in mind, um, the plants uh, became very hardy, the root system became very deep. A lot of our native grasses, the root system will grow 20 feet deep. And um, our plants are much more resistant to fire, to drought, to flooding, and, and disease. And those are the important qualities that our native plants have. But we also learned to use fire as a tool to manage landscapes. Um, along the central coast of California, um, the coastal um, landscapes was a coastal prairie, and our people and it was and our people used fires to manage to keep those landscapes open, and um, um, we saw fire as a gift and as a tool given to us by a Creator, and so um, the, the way that we use fire is something that we can all learn from today. It is not, you know, that it's an, it's an important way of managing landscapes. Our people also learn to um, have ceremonies to call back the migrating geese and the migrating salmon, etc. So um, our people had a strong relationship with the plants. We saw them as our relatives. They were made by Creator, uh, the same way we were made by Creator. So therefore, they were our relatives. And so we treated them with love. We treated them with patience, we talked to them, we listened to them. They told us what we needed, and we were very thankful. So um, the way that our, our, we believe that the way our people took care of Mother Earth is what's needed today if we're going to address the issues of climate change. I mean, I gave that example of our plants uh, being very resistant to the flooding and to the fire, etc. Um, that's what's going to be necessary um, uh, with, with climate change coming. To be able to uh, to deal with the uh, increase uh, risk of floods, fire, um, drought, etc. Thank you. Can you uh, go and talk about uh, then the three different phases of colonization that the Mutsun have gone through, and uh, maybe talk a little bit about the ecological damage that each phase has done? Of course. Thank you. Well, the um, our history, you know, we see that our ancestors were on a path. Um, it was a sacred covenant we had with Creator to take care of Mother Earth and all living things. And our people were actively working to fulfill that obligation. Uh, but their journey was violently interrupted um, by three brutal periods of forced colonization. Um, all three periods of colonization, that includes the Spanish um, mission period, the Mexican period, and the American early California American period. All three of those periods wanted to destroy our culture, our spirituality, our environments, our humanity. Um, they did not value um, our indigenous knowledge. They did not value our native plants, our food plants, our medicine plants. They thought our grazing grasses were inferior and they thought that we were less than human beings. And uh, they actually equated us to all the other animals that lived on the lands, you know, the deer, the bear, uh, the squirrels, etc. They thought that we were equivalent to them. They did not consider us to be human beings. And so whenever the missions came, an important thing to talk about that missions is that whenever they came, um, a lot of people think that the missions came to evangelize in the name of Jesus Christ. That's not why they came at all. Those missions came to fulfill the, the directives of the papal bulls that were issued by Pope um, Alexander, I believe it was, in 1453. And then there was four total papal bulls uh, that were issued over a 50-year period. And those papal bulls said that all indigenous people are heathens, pagans, and savages, that 
indigenous people have no soul. And that's an important one, because if you don't have a soul, you're not a human being. And if you're not a human being, if they enslave you, if they brutalize you, if they rape you, if they kill you, it doesn't matter because it's not a sin. And that's what the papal bulls uh, 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 said about indigenous people. Indigenous, uh, the papal bulls also said that all indigenous people are the enemies of Jesus Christ, that we were to be put into perpetual slavery, and that our property and our possessions were to be taken from us. And that's exactly what happened to our people. Uh, the Indians were, um, were um, forcibly captured by soldiers, and uh, the women were tied together with um, thumb to thumb uh, to form a human chain, and then they were marched back to the mission. Um, once they got to the mission, they took away their names, took away their language. Uh, they separated the men from the women from the children. They didn't want the indigenous knowledge and, uh, and the indigenous culture and ways being passed down to that next generation. They separated the men and the women, and they, the only way they can ever get back together again is if they um, promised to accept, um, to convert rather, to Catholicism and to be citizens of Spain. So um, that, that force or that coercion to, to accept the conversion and stuff like that was brutal. And if they did not do that, they would never be back together again. Um, there was a lot of other brutality at the missions. They said that all boys over the age of 10 had hernias from the hard labor. A disease would come through and wipe out people. A couple of examples I use all the time is that mission San Juan Batista in 1823. They reported in these entire they called them. These right here were surveys or questionnaires sent down by from Mexico City to um, ask about to get in, gather information about the missions. And one of the questions they asked is how many Indians died at the mission in mission. Um, San Juan Batista, they reported that 19,421 Indians had died. And that mission um, continued for another 10 years beyond that. Um, in Mission Santa Cruz, that was the most brutal mission of all. Life expectancy there was two years. And uh, the, the priests actually killed um, the priest, Father Quintana, at Mission Santa Cruz. Uh, what happened there is, I mean, he, as I said, he was very brutal. But they, um, but you know, the Indians would receive whip, would be whipped for any minor infraction. But then he got the idea to put these metal bars on the whip. So whenever they would whip the Indians, they would tear the flesh. And so um, he, once he put the bars on and stuff like that, um, it was so brutal. And punishing that the Indians killed, uh, made a plan to kill Father Quintana, which they did. But that mission period also, they thought that our foods were inferior, so they completely changed the diet of the natives. They could no longer eat their, you know, there's eight kinds of California Indian potatoes. There's Indian lettuce, there's Indian carrots, celery, onion, etc. Uh, we had well over close to 100 plants that we've identified as that were our traditional food plants. And so they had plenty to eat year round. They did not hunt and gather, as I said. They managed their food resources and their basket resources and their medicine plant resources in a very effective way. But they changed their diet completely. Also, they thought our grazing grasses were inferior. So whenever they brought in their cattle and stuff like that, they would bring in their they're raising grasses that they had in Europe and start planting them. And those grazing grasses quickly shaded out our native plants and our native plants disappeared. Um, they would put their cattle near the springs where the, where the Indians used the springs um, for their water source. And, they, and, and the cattle would stay near the springs. And uh, there's an, an example at Mission uh, Santa Clara where um, the cattle, because of the feces and the urine, um, at that spring, um, 25 babies got sick and died in one uh, very short period of time, but that was due to contamination uh, by the cattle. So that was a brutal time. Then came the Mexican period, 
and the Mexican period, during the Mexican period, they, they recognized that the conversion of the California Indians to being citizens of Spain and uh, Catholicism did not work. And so what Mexico wanted to do is bring citizens from Mexico into California. And, and, and as Indians incentive, they were given these large land grants of land here in California to people that would move to California and um, bring their families so they can start populating the state. Well, their goal for these ranches was to establish these large um, cattle, large herds of cattle, horses, pigs, and sheep. And uh, there again, they felt that our grazing grasses were inferior, so they brought in many more of the different kinds of grazing grasses that they had in Europe. And again, they further uh, eliminated our, our native plants. Uh, during the Mexican period, there was no lay, uh, there was no labor. Uh, they did not. There was no labor force here, and so they started going to the to the foothills and capturing Indians and, and putting them into uh, forced labor. It was slavery, just as it was during the mission period. I didn't mention that in the mission period, but during that time, that was slavery. That. Um, and then um, there's a story at, mission, at San Juan Batista, rather, this is after the mission times in 1839, of an Indian who tried to run away from a Mexican rancho, and uh, they sent people out to capture him, and they lassoed him by the neck and drug his body back and left it right there so all the other Indians could see it just decompose over a number of days uh, just to put fear and terror to the Indians of what would happen to them if they tried to run away. Um, there was a lot of just brutality and really changed the landscape of California. Uh, then came the American period. And uh, the year that California became a state, that was the same year they discovered gold. Um, and so uh, we have tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people coming from across the United States and around the world to go into the mountains and the hills to try and stake a claim. Uh, to find riches and gold up in the mountains. Um, the Indians who had the same responsibility of our tribe of taking care of Mother Earth saw how destructive and uh, these miners were to the landscapes. And so they started to defend their landscapes and, and, and try to keep the um, invaders out. Well, that was recognized as an Indian problem. And so the federal government came up with a solution and the American government came up with a solution. The federal government was to negotiate treaties, and so they sent commissioners to California to negotiate treaties, which they did. Those treaties um, established 18 reservations in California, north to south, mostly in the central California area. And um, in 1851, our tribe signed that treaty, and many California tribes signed that treaty. Um, after that treaty was signed by the commissioners, it was sent to Washington, D.C. to be ratified. California did not want those treaties ratified, and so they passed a resolution asking the president and the U.S. Senate to not ratify the treaties, and then they sent um, a delegation to lobby against their ratification. Uh, the president ordered that these treaties be sealed for 50 years. And so the treaties that our people signed um, was actually sabotaged by the state of California. And um, um, as a result, today we have many, many federally unrecognized tribes and many, many landless tribes in California. But that's because um, our treaty was sabotaged by the state of California. Now, the state of California had their own plan to deal with the Indian problem. They did not want reservations and they did not want treaties. What they wanted to do was to um, um, exterminate all California Indians. Um, Governor Peter J. Burnett, in the very first State of the Union of California, said that there will be a war of extermination against the California Indians. That is to be expected. And um, one of the very first acts that the state did was they passed a U.S. Treasury—excuse me, a California Treasury bond—to pay for the extermination of California Indians. 
So now we have California citizens investing in treasury bonds to pay for the extermination of Indians. The state raised approximately $1.7 million um, with that bond. And with that, they paid bounties for dead Indians. They paid uh, 20, uh, the going rate for um, a scalp was 25 cents to $5. And, uh, and so there were bounty hunters who uh, made a lot of money um, killing Indians. Um, and they actually, uh, you know, they bought a lot of the land and they named towns after them. There's towns named after the people, the bounty hunters, um, who made their, you know, bought the money to buy as much land as needed for that town um, here in California. They also used that money to pay for um, militias to go up into the mountains to fight, to, to search out the Indians and then to kill them. We have massacre sites here in California um, um, conducted by General Fremont. We have a town's name at the Fremont, Fremont Schools, Fremont Parks, Fremont Mountain Peaks, etc., named after um, General Fremont. Yeah, there's a remarkable amount of geography in the Bay Area that's officially named up and as like monuments to genocide. I mean, even so much of it comes from um, both, like all three periods of colonization too. There's still the Junipero Serra Freeway. There's still I just like it's it's remarkable how little attention that gets compared to like like Southern memorials to the Confederacy. But it is at least it, it seems to me to be pretty comparable. You're absolutely right. Um, one thing about General Humani, yeah, in, in one day he had a massacre of over a thousand Indians in one day, you know. And then after that was followed by period, they, the laws to legalize kidnapping um, of Indians and, and they would sell them. Uh, boys would sell for um, $150, girls would sell for, for $300. A lot of those gold miners that came to California did not bring wives or female companionship. And they also had laws of indentured servitude. There was slavery in California under the laws of indentured servitude into the 1930s. So that's just a horrible, horrible history that California has never um, faced up to. Um, they've never recognized their culpability in any of it. Um, they, you know, they, they, they still pretend to speak with moral authority. Uh, although this state was built on a complete immorality and, um, uh, and um, our tribe today is seeking to tell the truth about these periods of time. You know, the true story of California natives has only been um, ignored, forgotten, and erased. And our tribe today will not allow that to happen. Absolutely. I think it is remarkable how, <laughs> how much erasure happens in California and uh, just how like remarkably whitewashed it is whenever anyone talks about California being like this bastion of progressivism as if it's not built on, you know, mass graves. Um, I did. So you talked a bit about how, uh, the, the Mutsun signed a treaty that was never ratified was sabotaged by the Californian government. And so, um, one of the main things you, uh, we're here to talk about is, uh, the Sergeant ranch, Quarry, which uh, I believe that would have been part of the treaty, right? Oh, actually, no. Because oh, they were going to remove me. us from our lands and put us in the interior value of, of valleys. They thought that that, that central yeah. that, that central valley, that land was much, worth much less. Okay. Because here along the coast and uh, Santa Clara County and mm. etc. I mean, that was you know looked at as, as, as very highly coveted and desirable lands. So they were going to, yeah. of course, put the Indians at the okay. land they thought they had the less yeah, capability. My, my mistake, my mistake. I should have uh, <laughs> put that together. Uh, so, but but um, can you speak a bit about uh, Eurostack, its, its importance to the Mootsin, uh, and, and its, and, you know, what, what's now called Sergeant Ranch? Yes. Um, Eurostack, translates in the Mutsun language to place of the big head. And um, our big head dances were the most important and highest ceremonial um, dances that we had. And, um, and we would hold them there at Eurostock. 
and people would come from afar away as Yosemite, north of the, of the San Francisco Bay, and south deep into the Chumash territory, Selenian territory, etc. And they would come in for the big head dances. Um, yeah, and Yurisdak was also the home of our spiritual leader, Kuksui. And uh, we had four Indian villages there, four native villages there, whose responsibility was to keep that land sacred and keep it prepared and ready for ceremony at all times. Um, when the missions came, the people were removed and taken to Mission San Juan Batista. Uh, when the missions closed, a lot of the natives, they came back to Yurastok uh, with the hope to uh, be able to restore the prayers and the ceremonies and be able to return to the life um, that they knew. But of course that didn't happen. And they were permanently removed from Yurastok in 1862. So our tribe has not had access to Eurostocks in that amount of time. We always hope to find a way to go back to it, and we believe someday we will. However, um, a little over a year ago, we learned that there was a, a, a proposal for a minor, there was a, 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 um, a proposal for to, to allow a sand and gravel mining permit um, on Sargent Ranch, and it would reduce the four uh, most sacred mountains of our tribe, it would reduce them, it would reduce them to um, a big hole in the ground. And, um, and uh, we, you know, to our tribe, we are a federally unrecognized tribe. There's no laws to assist us or help us uh, 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 um, defend against this. Um, if this right here, if we were, we, we have no doubt that if we were Catholic or Jewish or Buddhist or Muslim or any other religion, that they would not dare consider doing this. But because we are a federally recognized tribe, um, we're perceived as having no rights, uh, no power, and no influence, and they feel that they can just come on in and destroy our site. Um, that may be true. That may be true. Well, we are, you know, we feel that what we're left to is just to beg and then to ask the public to stand with us and tell them that the public will, that the, that the citizens will not allow this to happen. That Native American spirituality must be respected and protected. And that's um, what we're asking the public to do. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm here as, as someone who is, is working on gathering kind of a people power towards that end. Um, so can, can you talk a little bit maybe about, um, in addition to its, you know, immense spiritual and cultural importance, uh, your stack is also really ecologically important to the area, right? Yes, it is. Um, your stock is at the Southern end of the Santa Cruz mountains. And it's a very important wildlife corridor. Uh, to the next mountain range to the south, which is the Gabalon mountain range. And it's very close, important corridor to the, um, to the Diablo range mountains, uh, which is to the south. And so it's a very important wildlife um, corridor in both directions. And so by allowing the sand and gravel mining, it will destroy a lot of the, the habitat that allows them, that makes it attractive, for example, um, when it rains, that sand and gravel allows the water to percolate down into the underground storage. And it's that underground storage that feeds all the springs. Well, if you take away the sand and gravel, that water will rush out. And so during the summer months, those springs will be gone. And it will make it much, much harder for wildlife to use that corridor um, for passage. In addition to that, they have um, a number of protected species there. And, um, and, and threatened and endangered species as well of, of wildlife and then, um, and then plants as well. So it's a very sensitive and, um, and tenuous um, uh, location for um, native plants. And those are the native plants that our tribe would hope to go back someday and be able to restore and, and bring them back so they can serve their purpose as being food plants uh, medicine plants, basketry plants, etc. Yeah. Uh, so that that actually brings in 
what I wanted to talk about next a little is because um, I, I mean I made that distinction, but it's really not one. I, it, it seems to me the the spiritual and cultural and ecological seems to be very tied together uh, to the moots. And, and so, can you talk a little bit about uh, the the moots and mission of land stewardship during your chairmanship? Mm-hmm. Well, in 2006, the tribal elders came to a tribal council and they said that Creator gave us the responsibility to take care of Mother Earth and all living things. And they said, we must find a way to get back to that. They said, regardless of our history, our tragic history, Creator has never rescinded that obligation. We have to find a way back. Um, listening to that, to the elders speak, um, I, I, I couldn't understand what the heck they were saying. <laughs> you know, you know, you know how, are, how are we going to do that? We're a very poor tribe. Uh, we own no land. Very few of our members can afford to live in our traditional territory. When we look at the lands of our territory, everything is marked, no trespassing, keep out, um, etc. And, um, you know, we said, how, you know, how, what lands are we going to speak for? What lands are we going to take care of? How are we going to steward? But in our culture, when the elders ask, it's not a true question to yes, no <laughs> question or, or a maybe question. It's you will find a way. And so we did what our, as a tribe, we did what our tribe always did. We prayed and we prayed to Creator. And we asked Creator to allow us to find a path to get back to fulfill to continue that journey of our ancestors and to fulfill our obligation to Creator. And, uh, and at the same time, we knew that that would help bring healing to the historic trauma that all of our members suffer from. And um, it wasn't long after that that we got invited by Pinnacles National Park um, to to come on in and talk to them. And they, they had a new superintendent, and the new superintendent I uh, just transferred in, and he had a great relationship with the Native American tribe from the park, from which he uh, transferred in from. And he wanted that same relationship with Pinnacles. And so we started talking to him, and he invited us in. And, and at first, it was kind of scary because the whole issue of trust and trusting the federal government was a big part of it. But also, we had lost a lot of our indigenous knowledge, and it's not easy to... Um, to agree to that because then you just feel that you're just going to end up feeling dumb or stupid because, um, you, you know, you don't, you know, you had lost the language and the understanding of the culture and the plant purposes, etc. And so we talked about it, we talked about it at our council meeting and council, um, at that meeting, you know, council said, um, you know, it's, true that we lost that knowledge, they said, but it's not our fault. We have to recognize it's not our fault, but we also have to recognize it's obli- our obligation to restore that knowledge. And um, so with that, um, our tribe has been on the path ever since to restore the indigenous knowledge of our ancestors and understand the tra- what traditional land stewardship means, uh, creating effective relationships with the plants and the birds and the four-legged and the fin and the water in the air and the, and the mountains and the rocks and the shadows, etc. So we've been working hard ever since then and to bring back the songs and uh, ceremonies and, and, and looking to take care of the places of power and protect our cultural sites. So we've been working extremely hard and um, start, our work is starting to get recognized now. You know, we have Today we have um, MOUs with um, National Park Service, with the Bureau of Land Management, with state parks. Um, we have MOUs with a lot of um, land trusts and open space districts and city and county parks. And um, we feel that we are working hard to restore our knowledge and we're confident that we will be able to restore 90 to 95% of that indigenous knowledge so that as um, requested by our by our elders, that we will return, to, we we are returning to the path of our ancestors, and we will fulfill our obligation to the Creator to take care of Mother Earth and all living things. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about the Amamuts and Land Trust? How maybe listeners might be able to support these efforts? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Uh, the four goals of our Land Trust are first. Um, um, protect and conserve our important and sensitive 
cultural sites. Uh, we do a lot of um, research, and we do our research with Stanford, Berkeley, UC Santa Cruz, and other academic institutions. But one thing about the research is that we just do the most least invasive areas just to learn what the landscapes looked like before first contact, to see what plants and animals were there. So whenever we restore the landscapes, we know, you know what to restore it to. Um, um, we also, so we have the, re, you know, so we have the research component. Then we have um, the education component. We're sharing this knowledge with the public so they can learn how to effectively steward the lands. You know, uh, for example, a lot of park, a lot, a lot of landowners, are, you know, the people that say they're conservationists and they take care of lands and, you know, the parks and parks and rec people. And, land trust, you know, they can look at stewardship as just putting a fence around a property <laughs> and putting a path on there and say, stay on the path, be home by dark. And they call that stewarding the land, you know, but that has nothing to do with recognizing the sacredness of the land, the relationships and taking care of the insects and the four-legged and, it's, and, um, and, and um, all the animals, etc. It has, does nothing for that. So, um, we're working hard to restore that indigenous stewardship of the lands. Uh, we do invite the public to come on in and work with us. We have um, regular sessions where we, you know, we have what we call work and learn parties where people come on in and help us work on the landscapes. And we do a lot of that work in the AM and then in the PM we'll talk about um, the, the, our ancestors or our traditions or how to um, use our plant materials for food for basketry, for medicine. We'll talk about um, um, how to make uh, traditional amuts and necklaces, for example, and stuff like that. Uh, we do invite the public to um, to support us. I mean, we are a, uh, a nonprofit land trust. Um, well, we have a 501c3, and we ask people if they're interested in finding out more about us to go to our website. Yeah. And I'll include a link to that in the show description so people can access that pretty easily. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah. The final thing I'll say is that um, uh, because we are a, um, um, a nonprofit, um, you know, all donations are tax deductible. So thank you. Yeah. And then um, well, let's talk about uh, your partnerships with different academic institutions a little because I think that might be of interest to our listeners. Uh, so... Uh, I mean, we're talking at a time when uh, indigenous people in Hawaii are fighting against academic institutions who are trying to build a telescope on sacred land. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm part of circles that are ostensibly justice oriented and, and do question what role science, like what role science plays in, in that way. And I'm surprised to see the amount of like chauvinism towards indigenous knowledge. Uh, that still seems to be a, a real problem in scientific communities. Um, can you talk about what what kind of knowledge people miss by by dismissing in more traditional indigenous sources of knowledge? Because to me, like when you talk about like you know the agriculture of the Amamuts and when you talk about the history of the Amamuts and that. Like it is scientific. Like you're not talking about something that in a way that should be incompatible with like European notions of like academics and science to mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was in college, you know, I, I you know, psychology, sociology, um, all these terms, you know, I'd go research them to see what the heck they meant. But when it came to science, I go, what does science mean exactly? You know. Mm -hmm. And so I studied, I, I looked into that, you know, I looked at a lot of different dictionaries and did a lot of searches. There was no internet in those days. Um, so, um, and, and the definition that I found that seemed uh, the most accepted and the most uh, 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 correct was knowledge, uh, science is the study of knowledge. Well, with that being the case, our, every generation of our ancestors were scientists. They were studying the knowledge of how to take care of the environment, how to take care of the grasslands, how to take care of the trees, how to take care of the fungi, how to take care of, um, you know, the, 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 the landscape so whenever the migrating yeast would come in, 
that the wetlands would be ready for them so that there would be plenty of insects for those migrating geese so that they can quickly get the, get the, the, get the strength and the body weight back up so they can continue their journeys. A knowledge of the salmon, the migrating salmon, about how, you know, where to put trees to, to keep the water shaded, to keep the water cool. A knowledge of how the salmon, at the, at, when they would come in from the oceans to start their migration up the rivers and stuff like that, you know, they would hang out at that base of that river to transition from salt water to fresh water. But um, that, allowed, that could take up to two weeks transition before they start heading upstream. Well, during those two weeks periods, they need a lot of, uh, of, of food resource so they can eat and get their strength up so they can make that migration to the top. So those are all the things that our ancestors learned. You know, I mean, why, how is that not science? Recently, I was talking to a biology professor, you know, and I basically said that I have little regard for science, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, he goes, well, yeah, I only believe in evidence-based uh, in evidence-based science. Yeah. And I kind of laugh and I said, you know, the problem with your evidence base is your evidence only has to be long enough until that first check cashes. <laughs> you know, I says, look at the fungicides we have. Look at the, the you know, Roundup. Look at the insecticides and stuff like that. Yeah, well, it's, it seems like universities have just kind of ignored and like local, you know, the California settler government has totally ignored 15,000 years of evidence. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, for us, and I told him, you know, I said, your evidence only has last until that first check cashes. Our evidence has to be good for the next seven generations. So everything we practiced, it had to be good for seven generations. So it wasn't worthwhile, you know, you know uh, knowledge, it wasn't worthwhile knowledge to, to follow and stuff like that, you know. So, um, I mean, and it's, that, and it's that science, you know, they gave us... Well, I mean, if you look at Roundup, I think I heard that over 230 pounds of, over 330 million pounds of Roundup is used in the United States each year. I believe that's a correct number. Um, and fertilizers, look at what's happening to fertilizers and that runoff on that and all the nitrates yeah. going into the water supplies and stuff. I mean, how is that science help, helpful? Yeah. How is that science helpful? Well, and how, how much of... You know, the, the mainstream Californian scientists just missed the boat on how to deal with forest fires, for example. Yes. Uh, and, like, just totally ignored moots and knowledge until, like, I guess now they're kind of sheepishly coming around to the idea that controlled burns will prevent forest fires. Oh, absolutely. I've talked that um, to the U.S. I mean, I, I talked at UC Berkeley and at Fiery College, just classes and stuff. They got regularly... You know, and, and I talk at conferences all the time. We talk about our traditional ways of using fire. You know, I mean, we would burn every seven to ten years. But that, that, mm -hmm. That's kind of like an average. But those are there are very um, um, low intensity fires. They don't get they don't get you know super hot or incredibly hot, and they kind of just roll along and creep along the ground. And they're really easy to manage and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And um, our people would look at a landscape and divide it into different segments, you know, five, seven, ten segments, and they would just burn one segment each year and have a rotation there. And that was actually very good for the environment because that first year fire, you know, you would, um, that heat is needed to generate a lot of seed production, um, seed germination, and that's a good way to take care of the, the, the birds and other seed-eating animals. And at times, our seasonally, our diet would be 40% as well. Mm -hmm. That second year growth, you get the shoots, and that's a preferred food of the deer, the elk, and other grazing animals. That third year, you start getting these bushier uh, plants and stuff like that, and those are there were important for um, the, uh, um, a lot of crafting things like cordage, uh, for, uh, for nets and traps, um, for uh, basketry materials. And, uh, you know, your food plants and stuff like that start coming in in that third year. And your fourth and fifth and sixth years, you start getting bigger materials needed for bows, um, needed for housing, for baby cradles, and a lot of other things. So there was a real uh, system of managing the landscapes so that everything was in balance. Mm -hmm. And it seems like everyone 
suffering. Everyone in California suffers for not having respected that knowledge. And now, you know, California forest fire season is just brutal every year mm-hmm. and, and, and is so damaging ecologically and threatens lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just, it just seems ridiculous to have been just, I, I think like, you know, the dominant narrative has been so pigheaded, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, but you, you do work with different academic institutions, right? You, you talked about working with Berkeley and Stanford and UC Santa Cruz, um, but the Moodsen have conditions. Uh, sure do. And and can you talk about that? What what does it mean for an academic institution interested in cultivating knowledge together with an indigenous people? What does it mean to actually respect the indigenous people involved in that? Well, we set the ground rules immediately. They get one chance. Mm-hmm. They get one chance. You know, and the other thing is, is that we have to be the decision makers every step of the way. We will not subordinate our position. You know, our our. our our knowledge, our interest, our culture for anything or anyone. And so whenever we get involved, like say for example, when we're doing, going to do some research on the landscape and stuff like that, we have the conditions of where they will dig, how much they will dig, how deep they will dig, and what to do in the event that certain cultural resources are, are, are identified, etc. All those conditions are there. And so, you know, whenever they go out, you know, we, we insist that they have underground penetrating radar or some other kinds of image underground imaging that allows us to assess whether that right there is a p- potential uh, burial or not. We will not allow our burial sites to be um, disturbed. But if we identify other features that are of, 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 of curiosity and look like they could give us some sorts of good information, then we will approve those. A good example is we identify this one feature at this one site and um, we identified it as a possible cooking pit. And so we went down and it was a cooking pit. And so that clearly showed us what animals lived there. For example, there were a lot of voles. And uh, voles only live on grasslands. And now this area was a forest because they stopped us. They, they had to stop our using fire that all these trees encroached on there. And now it's, it's just a dug fir. People call it a dug fir a woodland and stuff like that. But it was a part of the coastal prairie. So the voles were an important indicator. There was tobacco there. Tobacco doesn't grow on the coast. So now we know there's a big trading routes. Mm-hmm. We also saw that there was no fish bones, so um, excuse me, bird bones. So we recognized this right here was more than likely uh, the part of the, uh, a bird clan. Uh, we saw what sea mammals were there, so that, that was, that, that what sea mammals they were eating, what fish were in the stream. We need one to restore that stream. Um, and we want to bring back the fish that belong in that stream. Uh, we saw that, for example, there was no very little acorn and a whole lot of hazelnut. And so now um, you look around and there was not many hazelnut trees around, but we want to bring the hazelnut tree. Yeah. So that research, you know, um, as it, you know, this way was of UC Berkeley and UC Santa Cruz on the search. You know, we, we learned a lot, but yet at the same time, we had um, ultimate decision authority every step of the way. Yeah, so that should be probably the model in terms of how scientific institutions interact with indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, has, you know, I, I say quite frequently now that if we're going to recover from um, climate, you know, the effects of climate change, it must be indigenous-led. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, again, like, you know, the people in power uh, neglect and dismiss indigenous knowledge and perspectives at their peril. Yes, thank you. Um, so circling back to Eurostack, uh, the main thing, if you live in Santa Clara County, uh, figure out who your county supervisor is and write them about this. If you don't live in Santa Clara County, and also if you do, uh, there's, a, there's a petition to sign online. I'll also include the link to that. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about how people, either locally or otherwise, might, might be able to get involved with helping the Mootsen? Uh, when they sign the online petition, there's a box to check there, and uh, we will send updates regularly. Um, I know on September 8th that we're going to have a walk. It's going to start at um, Mission San Juan Batista and go to, it's going to be about a five-mile walk, and um, then it's going to be, uh, be a time for us to uh, um, to pray and to talk about the issues of Eurostock and to ask the public to support the tribe 
let the Board of Supervisors and the Planning Commissioners know that it is not okay to destroy the sacred sites of Native Americans. Yeah, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, before we sign off, just real quick, this is a podcast for people who are interested in socialism and technology. I have to assume that there's a fair amount of Star Trek fans involved. So can you speak a little bit about the connection that the Moodsen have to Star Trek? <laughs> Yeah, this is a fun one. Um, um, in 1978, a person um, by the name of Mark Okren, he wrote, a, he, he received his dissertation from UC Berkeley, um, and, he, and he wrote the, a book on the Mutsen grammar. And uh, it's a fantastic resource for our tribe to this day. However, Mark Okren, when he... Um, after leaving Berkeley, he was approached by um, some people that were working with um, the Star Trek, the television series. And they asked him if he could develop a language, um, um, Klingon, um, for that series. And so Mark Oakran actually based um, the Klingon language on the Amamutsun language. And so there's a real clear connection. And a number of, several years back, we asked Mark, Mark Oakran to come on out and talk to us in the public about the relationship of Klingon to Mutsin. And that was a wonderful presentation. So, if you want to look more into that, I, I highly encourage it. Thank you so much for speaking with me, pal. Thank you. It's not too late to make your choice, it's not too late. It's not too late to change yourself, it's not too late. It's not too late to change the world, it's not too late.